Hey guys, you're listening to episode 43 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking to Calvin Edwards, the founder and CEO of philanthropic consulting firm Calvin Edwards & Company. Welcome to the show. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. We had the chance to sit down with Calvin Edwards, founder and CEO of Calvin Edwards & Company, a philanthropic consulting firm that helps givers perform due diligence and assess program effectiveness of potential ministry partners they might consider supporting. Calvin has a unique perspective into what it means to be a good steward and had wisdom on all sorts of topics, like how he assesses an organization's effectiveness and how to get started as a new giver. Stay tuned to hear all he had to share. Before we get started, do you ever wish you could find more people who are passionate about generosity, serving their communities, and advancing the gospel? Well, check out our Facebook group where you can join the discussion and hear what others have experienced in their journeys. You don't have to have a financial finish line to join. All you need is a passion for glorifying Christ with whatever God's given you to manage. Look for the link in our show notes to learn more. And with that, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here today with Calvin Edwards. Calvin, thanks so much for joining us tonight. We're thrilled to have you. Happy to be here. I'm hoping you can just get us started off telling us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure, Cody. It's a pleasure to be with you. And yeah, just briefly, as you can probably tell the moment I start speaking, I'm from down under, originally born in (laughs) New Zealand, but grew up in Australia. And my early years were spent in a home that on one side of there was a Christian college and the other side there was a sheep farm. And I just grew up in this sort of mixed world of academia and rural things and agriculture and all of that. But later in my life, moved to Australia and basically think of that as my home, came to the U.S. in 1979. I'm blessed to have grown up in a Christian home and have a strong Christian background, went to Christian schools and started working in ministry when I graduated from graduate school. And basically, my life sort of divides into two parts, my work life. About 20 years, I'm just using round numbers here, worked in uh, ministry with parachurch organizations. And then for four years, sort of I think of it as a bridge, worked with Ronald Blue and Company, a financial planning firm you've probably heard of. And then for 20 years since that, the other side, have worked as a philanthropic advisor doing research, analysis, and evaluation of Christian organizations, also some secular organizations, and helping people to give wisely. So my whole life has revolved around ministry, and that's sort of the world I grew up in, sort of starting at a Christian college, going on to teaching for a year or two, then coming to the U.S. and developing a career in working at a variety of of Christian organizations, the largest and best known of which is Walk Through the Bible Ministries in, in Atlanta. So many people would know that one. So some other organizations, one in California, one in Florida, they're smaller, but that's where I made my mark, you, you might say. So basically, I'm a nonprofit guy, you know, sort of a nonprofit nerd, and just have worked in that area or advised on that area 
for my whole life. That's the thing I know. Yeah, you certainly have an interesting background and a bunch of different parts that play into a lot of what we like to talk about on the podcast. So we're excited to have you here. I'm interested to hear a little bit about that transition period you had after going through 20 years of ministry. How did you end up at Ronald Blue and Co? And you know what was your role there? How did that kind of shape the next couple of decades that came up? Yes. To be honest, really the way that I got to be there was because Ron Blue and the COO at the time, Roy Ludwig, both knew me. We all went to the same church and we'd had other contact outside of church and so forth. And essentially, I was looking for a change at the time, and they approached me and said, would you come work with us? So as a practical matter, it happened because I knew, you know, Ron is basically sort of the end to that story. Like so many situations where people get jobs because they know someone, this was another one of those. I helped run the company, worked for Ron. Two of us ran it. There were two sort of number two guys, and I was one of the number two guys. So basically, I was running company, but clearly it was a stepping stone, something that God led me to, to prepare me for what I was to do next. So I needed a transition, a sort of a bridge between working for nonprofits and working for donors about nonprofits. And going to Ronald Blue was God's way of sort of teaching me the consulting business, sort of like showing me how things worked in a for-profit organization outside of a ministry and really learning a lot from Ron and the leadership team there. So it was a time where I got to know directly and indirectly high net worth families that I'd only known before as donors to a ministry. And now I had a sort of a more complete and rounded view of them, their life, their family, their situation, because they were clients of Ronald Blue. So it was a time where I was prepared to go serve the kinds of people that they were serving, but in a different capacity as a philanthropic advisor, not a financial advisor. So could you tell us a little bit more about what happened when you transitioned away from that position? It was a giant step of faith. I spoke to them, of course, at Ronald Blair, also spoke to them at National Christian Foundation and various other advisors and said, I'm thinking of doing this. How crazy do you think I am? And basically the answer came back with, we don't think it's crazy, but it is a challenge. So the stepping away was very definitely a step of faith. In fact, I'll tell you the story of literally how it happened. So I had this idea that we would form a small consulting business that would give independent advice to major donors who wanted to be thoughtful, strategic, and intentional. So I basically had the idea. Now we had to sort of transform that into a reality, create a business out of it, see if it could actually work and so forth. So I had a friend, a man I knew who was an investment banker and quite successful, made a lot of money, and was giving a lot of it away. And I thought, well, He's a candidate. So I went to him and asked him what he thought of the idea. This was at a Starbucks on Old Alabama Road in Alpharetta, Georgia. And he said to me, I think it's a great idea. So I said to him, well, would you use a service like this? And he said, yeah, I think I would. 
is to a fair degree a do-it-yourselfer. So when he said he would use a service like this, it sort of meant quite a bit to me. So I said, well, do you have any current needs now? He said, well, as a matter of fact, I do. He said, I feel under conviction. I give by far the majority of my money to evangelism. So there's nothing wrong with that. But the scripture also calls us to give to widows and orphans. And basically, I don't do any of that. He said, I want to find a, I'll never forget this phrase because it was sort of a, an anomaly, a blue chip homeless shelter in Atlanta. And I'd like to support it and I'd like to take my kids to work there on Thanksgiving and so forth and sort of get behind it. He said, is the kind of thing you're talking about helping me find an organization like that? I said, yes, it is. I said, well, if I quit my job and started this business, would you hire me to do that? And he paused for a moment because he could see what was coming. I was sort of backing him into a corner. <laughs> and he said, yep, I would do that. I said, right, I'm quitting. Don McCard drove back, quit, and went to him and said, I'm ready. And he was our first client, and that's how he got started. So you ask about that transition, Cody, but that was the real transition, how it actually happened. Literally in a day, there was a point in time where it happened. That's such a great starting story. And it's so true for so many of the great leaps of faith that God calls us to in our life. It just starts with a little bit of a nod that you're heading in the right direction and then just taking the jump. So you have a lot of experience now in exactly what you're describing, looking at organizations and assessing how effective they are in helping match donors to organizations. And I'd love for you to just kind of walk us through what that looks like, even with examples or how you go about that process and what kind of stuff you find along the way. Yeah, okay. Well, there's a lot we could talk about. Let me sort of summarize it into two buckets or maybe three buckets. So one of the things we do is to help donors uncover their God-given desires, aspirations, values, beliefs, convictions, and where they want to give. They generally know that, but sometimes there's a fair bit of fog around it, and there's sort of a clarification process that goes on. So there's no sort of magic in that. It's mostly sort of asking questions and talking things through. Of course, we have a process to do that, but it is you know, ultimately sort of not that complicated. But there's the clarification process for a donor. But then to go to your question, Keelan, which is really about when we're looking at organizations, how do we do that and what have we found? On that side, there's these two main buckets. Now, to be honest, when we started, we only pictured, we only knew of one bucket. And that's obviously where we started. The other one came later. That I would call organizational due diligence. So organizational due diligence is really describing, analyzing and describing an organization in a degree of detail. If you think about like, well, what is due diligence? Like if I was to do due diligence on something, what would I be doing? What's it consist of? It's really getting to understand what's there. So we do that for organizations where we uncover we generally look at that under 11 headings like uh, board governance, mission, vision, strategy, programs, human resources, finances, legal, fundraising, and so forth, sort of t fairly typical categories. And we will then go in and examine an organization from that point of view. 
Let me just sidetrack one bit here and say something else, because this is important the way we view it. And I think for listeners, it's important to keep this kind of principle in mind too. And that is when we do that, this may surprise some people, we don't pass judgment. We say, this is what is. Think of it like an audit. So if you get a financial audit of an organisation, of a business, an auditor comes in and audits the finances and says, this is your balance sheet. It's correct. This is your income statement. It's correct. And an audit certifies its accuracy. It doesn't say, oh, my, what a beautiful balance sheet this is. Or look at this income statement. What a great income statement you've got here. It says this is what is. And the reader of those financial statements can then say, ah, now that I know what is and it's certified true, I can pass some judgment about it. So the reader passes the judgment, not the auditor. And we approach due diligence in that way, where we try to be very neutral. I think of it as sort of like, you know, a clinician with the white lab coat on. You know, we just come in and sort of analyze things like a scientist and say, this is what you've got here. So we've tried over the years just to become very good at that, to be able to sort of see, you know, things we haven't seen before, see unusual things, see weird things, see things that raise your eyebrows, see very mundane things. And to be able to sort of understand what we're looking at and to convey that to a reader. So that's the first bucket of looking at an organisation, organisational due diligence, which is basically describing what is. The second thing is a totally different thing. We did not do this in the early days. We started in 2001, and we probably didn't do this till about 2005 or six. And it was interesting because we went from none to majority. The most of what we do now is this second one, which is program evaluation. So this is assessing the impact of a program, of a ministry. What difference is it making? So sometimes when I'm speaking, I'll say, look, you can pass all the organizational due diligence and it can be a good organization, but what is the impact it is having on the people it is serving? That's a different question than who's on the board, who's the leadership, are its finances sound and so forth. They can all be good. And the program where it's helping the homeless in downtown Pittsburgh just isn't working too well. Or the evangelism they're seeking to do in maybe, I'm just sort of making up an example, but let's say in the digital world, which is actually sort of quite challenging and, you know, something people are quite interested in, digital evangelism isn't working. So how much difference does it make in people's lives? So the second bucket is program evaluation, assessing the amount of impact that a program has. Is it achieving its goals and to what degree is it doing so? Very different products, very different processes, very different questions. Some people want one, some want the other. I can tell you that the trend is very much towards program evaluation. In fact, this puts it maybe a little bit sort of crudely, but I think there are people who would say, I don't really care about the organization. If they are helping children who have AIDS in Africa, then that's all that matters to me program effectiveness. So maybe there's some problems at the headquarters. Maybe the CEO got fired. Maybe they need a new financial and accounting system. Maybe this, maybe that. 
the helping kids with AIDS in Africa, that's what I care about. So there are people who will put a weight strongly on one or the other, or maybe a blend of both. So that example of your first client, that was someone who was looking for transparency in organizations that they might support. But I would imagine that some organizations might seek you out on their own in order to have this verification that their programs are effective and they are doing what they say that they're doing as a way to promote transparency to potential donors. Is that the case? Yes. Actually, it's a very keen observation. And I wish I had have made that keen observation myself early on. We started out not thinking that ministries would want that sort of assessment, sort of not really realizing that they would, being very focused on serving donors and just sort of didn't pay attention to, didn't sort of think it was an issue, that the ministries would want this kind of validation, verification themselves. I was quite wrong. So it took us about 10 years of serving donors exclusively and saying no to the charitable organization if they wanted us to do for them the same kind of work we were doing for a donor. But there came a moment in time, it was actually, I think I can sort of talk about this openly, sort of provoked by the McClellan Foundation. You may know the McClellan Foundation in Chattanooga, who came to us and basically said, Calvin, what you do is good. It's unusual. Not many people do this, but you make it too hard to get. You ought to just do it for ministries as well as for donors. And that led to a very polite argument between me and the McClellan Foundation. And as you possibly know, the trend there is to lose those arguments. <laughs> I became convinced that they were right. So really at their provoking, and I think rightly so, and looking back, it was all a God thing, but God used them to sort of speak to me to get us to loosen up. So yes, we have for more than 10 years done the same kind of work that we set out to do for donors for a donor or for a ministry. We have to be careful doing that. We can have a conflict of interest and we have covenants to guarantee that we will disclose if there is a conflict of interest and so forth. It's never been a problem, but we do have to tread carefully because we work both for the ministry and for the donor. And let me just sort of say one more thing about that. So it didn't sort of occur to me, I think maybe a bit naively, but also I think because times were changing, that the ministry would want that kind of a service, but they do. So I just want to sort of emphasize the fact like this isn't just sort of, you know, an odd or random thing we do. There's significant requests for that and they take it seriously and they want the kind of due diligence or program evaluation that we do done at a high level. They don't come to us sort of just hoping to get a quick report and a quick okay and sort of check that box and Calvin Edwards and Company said so and now they can quote us. They are seriously looking for a serious analysis. So I've been greatly encouraged by the response from ministries that parallels the work we do with donors. Yeah, that's interesting. That's something I hadn't thought of, but it makes a lot of sense. I was wondering if you'd be able to share, maybe without sharing names of ministries, but sharing kind of an example of how you might actually determine the effectiveness of a specific program. You know, if you have a 
program doing evangelism through national missionaries abroad somewhere or providing water with wells or something like that. How do you guys go about starting to assess the effectiveness once you get started? Yeah, yeah, very good. Yes, I'm thinking of an example of a mission agency that works in Ethiopia. This is a case we worked on a couple of years ago. So the way we deal with that, we can't just go to Ethiopia and have a look how they're doing. If we're going to assess effectiveness, from our point of view, to assess effectiveness is to measure effectiveness. So it's not Calvin's opinion. It's not the observations observer, but it's a measurement. It's a formal process. So the way we would do that is we would say to the ministry, what's the mission you have in Ethiopia? We'd come down a level from that and say, right, if that's your mission, what are the outcomes you seek to achieve when you do your ministry in Ethiopia? And then we would say, what are the indicators of those outcomes? And then we would convert those indicators to questions. So essentially think of a three-tiered system under the mission. So the mission is expressed in outcomes. The outcomes can be measured with indicators. Indicators are ascertained through questions. So at the bottom, there is a questionnaire that is administered to the people the mission agency works with in Ethiopia. And that asks questions which are, in fact, indicators which indicate that the outcomes are being achieved. When the outcomes are being achieved, the mission's being achieved. So it all relates, it tightly relates and connects. We will then administer, when I say we, we will oversee the administration of that survey instrument to the people who are being served in Ethiopia. We did that in five locations in Ethiopia, in Addis Ababa and a couple other places. And we'll come back with, depending on the, you know, the client and the situation between hundreds and thousands of surveys, but hardly ever would it be less than a couple hundred, commonly six to 800 surveys. So that data is then analysed in Excel. Sometimes we've used SPSS, people know that, but uh, usually in Excel these days because it's so powerful. And we'll convert those questions to a numerical score and we'll go back to that mission agency and say, look, you said that what you're trying to achieve was, you know, understand the gospel, have people accept Jesus as their saviour, have people understand principles of sanitation or, you know, whatever it might be. And on those outcomes, those things you're trying to achieve, you scored 8.7 out of 10, 7.2 out of 10, 4.1 out of 10, etc. So we'll come back with an actual numerical score. But it's all derived from the ministry's stated desired outcomes. There's no point us coming along with some sort of generic, it's like we know what effectiveness looks like, like sort of stand back, we'll come in and check your effectiveness. We have to come with a humble posture that basically says, tell us what you're trying to do and let us then seek to measure how much of that you are actually getting. What kinds of things would end up on the final report and how are those results actually used by either donors or organizations typically? Yes, good question. So basically on the report, and we do provide written reports, you know, as in they're not sort of PowerPoint presentations or diagrams on a whiteboard at the end of a boardroom table or something. You know, they are written reports we do. 
So in it is basically the basic elements of that are going to be a program description, like what is it that we are assessing the effectiveness of. What we call outputs, which is how much of the ministry they did to how many people. So if it's training, it's like five training programs with 100 people at each that lasted for a day each or, you know, whatever it might be. So it's basically quantifying, specifying in metrics what the ministry did. Still don't know its effectiveness, just know what they did. So the program description, the metrics of what they did, we call it outputs, and then the outcomes, which is what I was talking about a moment ago, where really you know what the effectiveness is. And we'll try to make that but mostly quantitative but also descriptive. We have some qualitative aspects to it. But we like the the rigor and the sort of easiness to understand of a quantitative you know, number that you can compare. As to how these are used, the ministry will typically use it to assess the effectiveness of their strategy. So this is particularly valuable when there are multiple programs or multiple sites. So site A scored higher than site B. So what are they doing at A that makes it more effective than B? Well, this strategy scores higher than this other strategy. What is it about this strategy that makes it better? So forth. So there's internal comparisons, but there's also just good old-fashioned reflection. Like, you know, we think this score could have been better. What can we do better? So there's essentially two aspects there. One is the how can we improve? And the other, and I perhaps should have said this first because I think it's really important, is the celebration of what God's done and the changes that are occurring. I have a concern about this. I may be wrong, maybe a little pessimistic, but I sort of feel like lots and lots of ministry workers sort of work away really hard every day and never quite see the fruit of their labor. And a sort of just the daily grind it sort of prevails. I know this isn't always true. There's plenty of joy in ministry, but I think there's sometimes a sense of like, what difference are we making? Is this working? And, you know, is all my hard work sort of paying off? So we want ministries to use their impact reports to celebrate what's been achieved. On the donor side, donors who are looking to make investments where a program is working, essentially going to use it to assess the degree to which a program is working. Now, as a practical matter, and this might sound cynical, but it's not. I don't mean it cynically at all. The majority of programs we evaluate are doing quite well. We've had some that are doing terribly bad. I mean, we've seen those, but the majority are doing quite well. So how does a donor look at a bunch of reports where this ministry is doing quite well, this one's doing quite well, this other one's doing quite well? It's like, well, well, now what do I do? I think that what donors tend to do is they use a report like ours to confirm a predisposition that they already had. They think they want to support this organization. They are in touch with the organization. They're in touch with the program leaders or the CEO or the founder or whatever. They've prayed about it. They're pretty sure they want to go this way. Then they see an impact report that says, yes, that sort of confirms it. I think I'll give there. So it is, in a sense, a confirmation of prejudices. 
And I don't mean that at all cynically. I think that's good. I think it's one of the ways that God speaks to us. It's like, here's some more evidence to support what you're planning to do. I don't think it's very often that donors sort of kind of line up sort of an array of different organizations and assess which one has the highest impact. It's more they have a tendency of where they're going to go, and then this adds confirmation. As you've spent the years looking at all these organizations, are there patterns or themes that you have seen about highly effective organizations? I'm sure they're all doing different things, as you mentioned, and they're all measured very differently. But there's not a lot of people that we speak to who have spent so much time speaking to so many organizations. And I'm just curious if there are things that have stood out to you as commonalities among the high achievers, I guess. It's a really good question. And I'm not sure that I have a well thought out answer. That's a question that is worth me going away and thinking about for a while. Sort of think you could write a book about. The thing that comes to my mind is sound strategy clearly articulated. It's doing things the right way and being able to describe that, state it clearly and precisely, which I think is a signal of the soundness of the strategy that you cannot articulate it. I can tell you that very often charitable organizations have trouble telling you what their strategy is. They know what their mission is. There is a problem in the world and their mission is to solve it. There are people who are homeless. Their mission is to make those people not homeless. There are people who are lost. Their mission is to make those people saved. There are kids who are not educated. Their mission is to get them educated. So they can always articulate their mission because their mission is to solve a problem and the problem is very visible. But when you go a level below the mission to solve the problem and say, right, amongst all of the ways that you could solve that problem, what is your way of solving it? I find that the person who can answer that question clearly and compellingly is often the person who's running a highly effective ministry. I think there's probably other factors too, but that's the one that comes sort of top of mind. Obviously, there's things like integrity and good planning and fundraising ability and so forth, and all these things that, you know, sort of commonplace. We all sort of know those. Dig deeper. I want to think some more about that, Keila. It's a good question. I should be able to have some profound answers to what are the markers with all of this looking back of a highly effective organization. But if it's got a leader who can tell you what he's all about, not just there to solve a problem and does all the talk about the problem, but does talking about how he addresses it. That guy's got my attention. Or or woman. Well, we might just have to wait for that book then. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Calvin, last time we spoke, we talked about this concept of stewardship. And I think it can be easy to think that managing the money in your bank account, in your investment account, in your retirement accounts is kind of the foremost focus of stewardship. And if you find yourself with more than you need and you give it away, then that is an element of good stewardship maybe. But you continue to have a role when you select organizations or individuals to support because 
you were involved in that process. And I was hoping you could just expand on that concept of stewardship, not only giving away money, but partnering with people who are actually deploying it in the kingdom. Yes, it's an interesting question to try to think through what it means to engage in good stewardship at the point of giving money away. I think the simplistic view that I've heard expressed sometimes is to give it away is sufficient. You have been obedient, you have given, you've arguably given generously. To whom you give it is not really the point. I would disagree with that. I would say that good stewardship pushes through beyond the giving and supporting kingdom work to supporting kingdom work that has a positive impact that is carried out after listening to God's voice and being prayerfully directed to do certain charitable things. It's interesting that in Scripture, fruitfulness is praised. And in the parable of the talents, the steward who has five talents and returns with ten, doubles them, it is praised. It seems to me that God does care about what our investments, what our giving achieves. So just to give, to sort of decrease one's net worth, you know, I'm worth $100,000 less than I used to be because I've given $100,000 away. That alone, I don't think, is quite good stewardship. It's a good act, and it's prudent, it's wise, and it's sound to do. But I think good stewardship goes beyond the, I gave it away, to whom did I give it? To what end did I give it? What was accomplished when I gave it? Now, when you get to that, it's still sort of tricky. So, like, right, I'm going to think about it. So now what do I do? Like, I still don't know which organizations, 1.3 million nonprofits in America, like, is giving to one of them good stewardship and giving to the other bad stewardship? Not for me to say. So I think basically, to me, at this point, good stewardship is a process. So I basically want to say two things about this. I don't think good stewardship can be outsourced. I don't think you can let someone else be your good steward for you. You must do it yourself. I think when you do it, it is fundamentally a process. It's a process of being thoughtful, of being informed, of being intentional, of being strategic, and of being prayerful. And I think that if one approaches where one gives with those kinds of principles, listening for God's voice and what he's calling you to do, then of the 1.3 million organizations, there may be quite a few that are all good stewardship to support, but it's been done in a thoughtful, intentional, prayerful way. When I think of this, I think of that line from Chariots of Fire, the movie about the Olympic runner, Eric Liddell, I think the name was, where he said, when I run, I sense God's pleasure. And I think that when we give, we should sense God's pleasure. I think the only way to do that is to study the organization, study the opportunities, do it thoughtfully, do it strategically, more than pulling out the checkbook and popping a check in the mail. But I think the way that looks for some, because they're giving large amounts, might be sort of serious due diligence for others. It might be 
sort of more of a, you know, Google search and sort of talking to friends and something lower key. I think there are different ways of doing this. But I do think that part of being good steward is knowing to whom we are giving and giving to that organisation intentionally and having our own reasons for doing so that we know what those reasons are. Yeah, it's interesting. So we talk to a lot of people who have been walking through generosity and growing in generosity for a long time. And I've heard a number of them say that at some point being generous is the easy part, knowing what to do with what you are giving or what you are using for God's kingdom is where all the challenges. And that's, I think, exactly what you're getting at with this idea of stewardship. Related to that, a question that we get often is, you know, somebody stepping into generosity and giving and stewardship kind of for the first time, or at least the first time in a serious way, and just wondering how to get started at all. Where do I get started? And so I'm curious for what your advice would be for kind of a new giver or maybe a new serious giver as to, you know, where to take first steps. Mm, Yeah. I basically suggest a sort of a three-step process. And the way you carry out these three steps can vary. It's not sort of just one way, but at the principal level. I think the starting point for a giver is to identify a cause, a problem to solve, a field to give into. This could be human services, it could be discipleship, it could be evangelism, it could be medical access, it could be children, it could be the family, it could be some aspect of American society for US givers. So some people will say, well, I actually don't know my cause. I have a friend, John Stanley, he wrote a book that addresses this. Here's an interesting suggestion. He says, if you don't know where to give, Be disciplined and read the newspaper every day for two weeks until you get angry and work out what makes you mad and then decide that your challenge is to solve that problem. I think that's a sort of interesting idea. You know, you may not want to actually read the newspaper for two weeks, but you can take that principle of what is it that I am concerned about? What is it sort of upsets me or gets me going? And maybe... What I should do is help people who are addressing that problem. You know, another example of this, which is actually very common in the medical arena, is the person who themselves or their spouse has gone through a medical situation. So the woman who's had breast cancer, the man who's had prostate cancer, whatever the story is, a parent with a child who has epilepsy or whatever it is, They will want to address that cause, help others get the help that they got or help others not face the problem that they faced and so forth. So three steps. One of them is to identify your cause. Usually that's a solution to some problem that gets under your skin. The second thing is to think about, and this is really a creative exercise, and you can read about it and do Google searches and YouTube and all of that, but what is the strategy that you believe would properly address that problem. In other words, how should it be dealt with? So, quick example, at one point we did work with Health and Human Services in Washington during the Bush administration, and they had a abstinence program which was helping teenagers basically not get pregnant. And we worked with about 160 grantees of 
Health and Human Services that ran these community programs addressing teenage pregnancy through abstinence education. Well, it was amazing because you could look at those organisations, you say, we've all got the same goal. We want to teach kids abstinence. We want to make sure they don't get pregnant. And then when you ask the very next question, which was, right, then how are you going to do that? You basically had 160 organisations doing it, not exactly 160 different ways, but let's say 20 or 30 ways. And, you know, some of them, of course, doubled up. But, you know, there was everything from we're going to hold after school programs to we're going to sort of teach in the school programs, sort of the health classes, work with the school district to teach health classes. Do we're going to put billboards up on the side of the road? Do we're going to work with parents? We're going to work through youth groups and churches. There's a lot of strategies. So once you've identified a problem, what do you believe is the effective way to address it? So that's the second question. What strategy would I like to support to try to solve the problem that got under my skin? And then the third thing, which is really just sort of kind of an add-on, is ask yourself whether there is evidence for that strategy. So what is the evidence? How do we know it works? This goes deeper. So by the time a new giver has gone through those mental processes in their minds and then looked at organizations that solve that problem using that strategy and has evidence to show that it works and probably organizations that are you know sort of local or you have some sort of access to or contact with i think that is a really good place to start so hopefully that wasn't too complicated an answer but it's sort of the principles behind it let me say one other thing about sort of new givers or people who are ramping up giving i think that sometimes they sort of want to hedge their bets and give to a lot of organisations or give to a lot and sort of find out sort of what works. I just want to put in a word for focus. I really think that the way for a new giver to sort of get on the right track is to focus on one or two areas, what are called causes or problems to solve before, focus on one or two of those and one or two or three organisations in each cause and become sort of an expert, like know your stuff, like know that problem, know that strategy, know that organisation, sort of get involved with it rather than writing, you know, I remember meeting with a family one time and the wife was sort of rolling her eyes because she was saying, my husband writes 100 checks every year between Thanksgiving and Christmas. We do all of our giving then. We've sort of worked out Thanksgiving. We do it by Christmas. And he sits down and writes 100 checks. And she was just like, I don't know who these organisations are. We're just sending them money. So it's this idea of sort of focus and getting to know the thing that you support. Yeah, that's great advice. And I've heard that a couple of times before, that idea of focus. I think that there's a lot of power in that. And I think it helps strengthen that initial conviction or being drawn towards a problem or a specific area. I think as you really focus on a small number of organizations working in that space, it intensifies your relationship with that problem and your passion for seeing change in that area. I wanted to pivot. So in the generosity space, there's a lot of focus on encouraging people to lead generous lives, but I think that there's a lot of hesitation in wanting to provide direction on where people should be giving. And since that is a lot of what you do professionally. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on when you think it's appropriate to give guidance on where people should give and what that conversation should look like. Yes, it's a very important question. 
So this might sound a little bit like splitting hairs. I think actually it's not. We at Calvin Edwards and Company don't tell people or advise people where to give. We provide information so that they can decide themselves. So in my view, it is the task of the giver in their relationship with God and the prayerfully considering to work out where they should give. So you are right that the generosity movement naturally leads to the question of, well, where should I give? I feel like if that question is to be answered by people like you or me, someone who sort of has some opinion on how you should go about this, we need to keep it at the principle level. Here are the principles of how you would decide that. And regarding organizations, as I said right back at the beginning, the description level, like I took a look and this is what I found. So we would very much try not, occasionally we've been sort of cornered by someone who really wants us to tell them where to give. There's usually a story behind that that is sort of quite unique. In fact, I'll tell you one in a second. But we wouldn't normally want to just sort of tell people where to give. We'd give them principles and we'd give them information. So they, I always say that our reports are something to pray over. That's what our report is. It's a thing to pray over. It's not an answer. But one time, I'll just tell you this very quickly, a bit of a rabbit trail, but an amazing story. A young woman, a young housewife, probably in her 30s, who had three young children, including a baby in diapers, came to us one day and said, my father, whom I don't know and who left home when I was a child, has gone on to have a highly successful life and is a multi-millionaire, feels tremendously guilty about abandoning his family. He was in another continent, by the way, has hunted his children down. I am one of them. And recently I received a check for $20 million from my unknown dad. Wow. <laughs> the most amazing story you can ever hear. She said, I want to tithe it immediately, and then I want to give more of it away, but I want to tithe it immediately. Can you tell me organizations to give that money to? Because she'd never given like this before, didn't know anything really about giving in a sort of a sophisticated way or at that level. She was insistent that we tell her who to give to. So it's a very, we were still reluctant to do that. But then I just say that because it's kind of an amazing story and there are remarkable things that happen. And only then would we consider telling someone. Normally we would just say, here's information, you decide. But I think your point, Keelan, is well taken. I think that following the emphasis on generosity, there needs to be information available. So, right, I want to be generous how do I now do that? That how question, which is the where question. So how do I decide where I give? I think we as a Christian community probably need to pay a bit more attention to that. We've sort of tended to just leave that open to people to sort of try to figure out on their own, mostly. Calvin, that story is incredible. And it just brought another question to my mind. I guess if you have an average income and you give a certain percentage away, it's on a heart level or even on a mathematical level, it's proportionately the same as if you had an extremely high income or a huge inheritance or if you had $20 million in the mailbox. Why do you think it feels so much heavier to give away the same proportion, the same percentage 
when the numbers get so much larger? It's a good question. I guess because there is more at stake, one can do more good or more harm or more neutrality, that is say, not doing good where good could have been done. So I think it's because of what is at stake. I suppose it's like, you know, all of us, when we're very young and early part of our career, where we open a retirement account and we invest our first money in the early years is $2,000 or $5,000 or something in it. And you're sort of not too worried about whether it's growing by 5% or 15% because it doesn't make much difference. And then you have the million-dollar account, and all of a sudden those percentages seem to matter a whole lot more. So I think, Cody, it's a sign of people wanting to be good stewards, isn't it? That this is God's money, that it does matter. Not only is it God's money, but it's quite a bit of it. And so I think it's a good thing that people continue to take that seriously and even more seriously as the amounts grow. Yeah, and I'm sure as the amount that you're managing or stewarding increases, it can be easy to get into sort of a paralysis where you just don't know or you're afraid to take action in any sense for fear of you know not even maybe being ineffective but potentially causing harm, like you said, through what you might be giving to or supporting. We see that and strongholds, obstacles to giving. Paralysis, I think there are a variety of them. That's really perhaps another topic for another day. But that does happen. And I think it needs to be prayed through. It needs to be sort of worked through. It's not like a quick fix. We can provide information and sometimes that will change things. It's like, oh, this is a great organization. I want to support that. That can change things. But often the obstacle is not an information obstacle. It's a spiritual or psychological or fear obstacle. I think we can, frankly, and I don't mean to sound sort of boastful or anything, but I think we can solve the information obstacle. I mean, if it is information, we can answer that question. We've done that a lot of times. We sort of know how. But that's not always going to be the issue that is holding back the generosity. There'll be a variety of issues, and some of them are very deeply spiritual. So, Calvin, I'm interested to hear with so much perspective and experience, what do you see coming down the line for the giving space and the generosity movement that we're talking about? Yeah, look, I think there is a lot of kingdom money on the sidelines that is going to be deployed for kingdom purposes. Some of this is in donor-advised funds. Some of this is in foundations. Some of this is in personal and business bank accounts. So I think that as there are more and better opportunities to receive funds, more funds are going to flow. So I think one sort of observation is that there's a lot of money waiting to find a place to go. I'm quite sure of that. Two significant Christian foundations are right now sunsetting. They are emptying out all of their money in a short time frame in, well, depends, I'm not sure how many years are left, but two, three or four years, sort of in that kind of range. A second thing I see is I do think that there are more and more donors who are thinking strategically and are seeking to be more intentional, informed, and a little less giving based on what others do, based on reputation, based on 
sort of hunches that I think there's increasing trend towards giving based in facts, evidence, information in a sort of an informed way. So the kind of outcome studies we're talking about previously, where you're measuring the effectiveness of the program, are becoming of greater interest to donors. That is clearly so over the last 10 or 20 years that we've been operating. You can just see, see the difference. The third thing that I would say just quickly is, and this is a bit of a complicated one to sort of explain or think through, and frankly, it might be a topic for you guys to do another podcast on another day, but impact investing and the impact of that on giving. I think that some people view it as another way of giving. Some people view it as a different bucket from giving. You know, I have my giving and I have my impact investing. And by impact investing in the Christian world, I mean making investments in businesses that have a Christian purpose. I don't mean just what ESG and DIA, whatever the acronyms are today, sort of wise investing from a worldly point of view. But I mean investing in businesses that have a kingdom outcome. And there are many outside of the US as a sort of another sort of financial structure than a charity that receives donations. So I do think that we're going to see a huge increase in that kind of impact investing. We already have. The numbers are already there. It's growing rapidly. The question is, how does that impact giving? Do people say, well, I did that, so I'm not going to give? Do people say, well, I'm doing that in addition to my giving? So how do they factor that in? I think that is yet to be worked out. So I just raise that as sort of a question that someone smarter than me might know the answer to, but I think it's sort of happening and it's going to have its impact. Yeah, and we've heard impact investing mentioned many times on the podcast. I think that there, like you're saying, is a growing interest. And I too am curious to see how that kind of, not only how that grows, but how it interacts with the traditional giving model, because there are still many, many ministries doing incredible work that operate exclusively through donations. And so it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the next 10 years or so. As we're getting to the end of our episode, I did want to leave a minute for our manager's minute. You know, as we seek to manage God's wealth wisely, we like to end every episode with one practical action our listeners can take to do just that. So Calvin, do you have a quick suggestion for how people can be using any financial margin they have to serve their communities, advance the gospel and build God's kingdom? I would just propose a very simple idea, and that is identify a area for giving that you've never given to before, that is new to you, and that is experimental, innovative. I'll give you an example. Arts. There are some great Christian arts organizations. Most people supporting evangelism and human needs. What about going to some area, identifying something that intrigues you, that you've never given to? Maybe you give to organizations that focus in America, then find one in Africa. Maybe you give to adults, but you never support children. So my challenge to you is to draw outside the lines, get comfortable doing something that's different, and find a field that you have never given a dollar to, didn't think about giving a dollar to, but when you stop and examine it, this could be a fruitful cause for the kingdom and just get outside the box a little bit. Yeah, I like that suggestion. I don't think I've ever heard that one before. And that is a great idea. I think, you know, just expanding the horizons and giving God the chance to do some work in your heart and to see what happens. So I might just take you up on that myself. 
Thanks so much for being with us today, Calvin. This has been an incredible and helpful conversation. I think that there's so much we have to learn and all of us in this space of effectiveness and and wise stewardship. And I think you have so much to add to that conversation. So thanks for joining us. Thank you guys for letting me be a part of this. And God bless you. Keep up the good work with what you're doing. And I trust there was something useful here that listeners can apply to their good stewardship efforts. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you want to learn more about Calvin and his firm, you can find more information on his website at calvinedwardscompany.com. And if you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 43. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time.